calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast, which is now part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 234 of the pandemic. It is the day before the election. We're a little tense around here, thinking good thoughts. Hope you are doing well. Hope, if you have not voted, that you have a plan for tomorrow. This is the most important election of our lifetime. We got a great show to distract you today. Alicia Dow, whose book, The Sound of Stars, is out right now. Alicia has a really fascinating background. She's a former pastry chef and food critic and culinary teacher and youth services librarian. And when she's not writing her YA sci-fi featuring determined black girls like herself, she's having epic dance parties with her daughter, baking, mentoring, and taking adventures around Europe. We talk about all of that on the show today, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. First, little business. As you know, we do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday, and there's two things you can do for us. You can leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. We also host a monthly happy hour, which you can find at thewritersjam.com. We have a whole bunch of new stuff coming your way that I can't wait to talk about, so keep checking the website. While you're there, you can buy the book of anybody who's been on the program. Click on that bookshop link. When you do that, we get a little scratch back, but you also support local and independent bookstores all over the world. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter that has book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. And you can support the entire Solid Listen network by clicking on our Patreon button. And for just a couple bucks a month, you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. So if you were listening to this on Monday, the day before the election, there's a really good chance that you are filled with anxiety and dread and fear because there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Lawsuits all over the country. Republicans are trying to discount votes. There's 4,000 lawyers. Nobody's sure what the Supreme Court's going to do with the Pennsylvania votes. Wisconsin votes have to be in by 8 p.m. on election night or they don't count. So there's a lot of anxiety. And we're not going to know the results of this election for a few days. It's unlike any other election that we've had. Because all of this is new and because we have a con man in the White House who's trying to steal this election. So you're rightfully full of dread. You are rightfully full of anxiety. The things you need to do, the things you need to remember. One, take care of yourself. Whatever that means. If that means you have to turn off the TV, if that means you have to take a walk, whatever it means. You need to make sure that you do that because your mental and emotional health is going to be the most important thing that's going to get you through this. If you haven't voted yet, get up in the morning, make your plan, figure out what you're going to do. If you have kids, see if you can have somebody watch them, if you can bring them with you, if you can go bring your friends, make sure you pack snacks and water. If you got a little camp chair, bring that. Nobody's really sure what's going to happen, particularly if you are in that population that hasn't voted yet, because in all likelihood, you're not voting in the mail because you don't trust the system, right? So that means that you're a very important demographic, particularly for the Democrats. 
And so make sure you have a plan. Make sure you ask for help. Make sure you do whatever you can to get out there. The next thing you need to do is check on your friends, right? You need to make sure that they're okay. We need to do this together because we have a whole machinery that's coming after us. And the best thing that we can do is take care of our emotional and mental health, make sure we have a plan to vote, make sure we're taking care of each other. At the end of the day, that's all we can do. And then we're going to have to fight after this. We're going to have to make sure that every vote gets counted. As part of that self-care, as part of that making yourself ready, and this is going to sound so weird and a little self-serving, but it's really not, but I'm really happy that I have this interview with Alicia out today because it is such a fun and joyful episode. Talking about her path, talking about her career, talking about her struggles with mental health, all of those things. It's such a real conversation, and she's just so kind and fun that it's also okay to distract yourself during this time. You don't have to be engaged 24-7. You need to be able to disengage and go take a walk or go talk to your kids or go, you know, socially distance and have a discussion with your neighbors or just sit outside. Whatever it is, whether you're listening to this program as a getaway or whether you're doing something else, it's so important because the next few months from this election until Inauguration Day, assuming things go the way that they are slated to go, it's going to be a tough slog. And we're all in this together. So I have no great words of inspiration today. I have no great thoughts on the world. Really, it is just take care of yourself, make a plan to vote, take care of each other. And that's all I have as we go into this election. I know you did not come here for get out the vote talk, but you're going to get a little bit of that today. But don't worry, I'm finished. Now we're going to do what you came here to do, which is listen to my conversation with Alicia Dow. It's really weird to see that a lot of people are now understanding that this happens. But when you grow up black and you have an entire black family, you know very early on that this is already, that's something that happens and you get to talk to very early. Right. And you just, you don't accept it, but you, there's nothing else you can do about it in a way. It's, it's very, it feels hopeless from time to time and you feel like you have no voice and you feel powerless. And it's good to see now that people have the time and they're using their voices and they're doing it even though the risk is so high. Um, and it's, it's really, it's impressive, but it's also, it's kind of scary, you know, but it's, it's good. And I, it's interesting to see how America is taking that from over here because I mean, they talk about it in Germany all the time. Yeah. The protests and all this stuff. And you know, the funny thing is they don't call it riots in Germany, but in the U S it's like, Oh, they're rioting. Yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting to watch that over here. Um, and it, it depends on the outlet, right? Like it, it depends on the outlet, the way things are framed. Yeah. Because what I watch does not frame it as rioting because it's not rioting. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, oh, you know, yeah, it's, it is. And, and the people that are actually doing this stuff, like once you read like, Oh, these are the people inciting the, the, the violence and things like that are not the protesters. Yeah. They are, white nationalists and other people that are coming in to to do what the government traditionally has done in America, right? Like one of my favorite books to read is the FBI. It's Malcolm X's FBI files. Mm-hmm. So after, you know, it was, I think like 10 or 15 years ago, maybe even longer, they released the entire thing. And, you know, you, you start reading very specifically about COINTEL Pro, right? Like about the government putting together teams to go infiltrate protest movements to sow disagreement. Yeah, And so it's hard not, like, when I see that stuff happening, I'm like, do we, does, did nobody read the history of, like, black protest in America? Because the government very specifically goes in, and the files are there. You can read them. Like, COINTELPRO is a thing. Like, it's not even hidden anymore. Um, and, and that, it's like that whole story about this protest thing that doesn't get talked about. It, it no, is, but, I mean, that's also part of the history of America. And, right. And conflict conflict anywhere is what they you know that's an it's an interesting topic I won't get into but I used to work in I used to work um in um a form of government where I had to talk about conflict and that was one of the things that we focused on a lot is how America um, gets involved with conflicts abroad um and at home 
but it was, it's very interesting that these things, they overlap and they're, you know, it's common practice, but nobody talks about it. It's very, right. yeah. That, that's what has been sort of interesting is that there has both been this awakening by white folks, because it's, <laughs> it's by white folks, right? Like, like yeah. if you're a person of color, this is none, none of this stuff no. is new. It's not new, no. <laughs> um, and I talk about it just because I, you know, we, we, we've chatted a little bit on Twitter and, you know, I think we both have the same sort of depression and anxiety issues or we have similar like outside of just the regular parts of life that (laughs) make that happen um it's just like this time and place with everything going on you have to really do work to not spiral yes and it's so hard it's so hard because you're like there's so many things that can that can drag you down and it's hard to kind of keep finding your balance and it's a i said it the other day it was like it's it's a battle yeah. Every day feels like it's a battle and I'm not sure who's winning yet. <laughs> if there ever is going to be a winner, you know? I, I 100% know that. I, I didn't tweet this out the other day because I knew how it would be taken. Even if I said, this is not a cry for help. Yeah. But I just had this feeling where I'm like, look, I understand why people kill themselves. Like, I, like when that depression hits, when that anxiety hits and you don't feel there's a way out, and the hole just that the top of the hole just feels like it's getting further and further away. Mm-hmm. A relief feels like not existing. And yeah. it's really hard to explain to people how I can both feel that way and also not be suicidal. There was there was an article about that, I think last year, and it, it was basically like, I don't want to kill myself. I just don't want to be alive at the moment. Yeah. And these two very things. And it's like you're you're floating in an ocean, right? And you're grabbing stuff so that you don't drown, so that you can stay up. But sometimes you're like, you're not sure if you want to grab everything. And that's, it's a feeling, it's a real feeling. And it was a very, it's a very thoughtful um, article. And I have to, I'll have to tell you what it is, like when I look at it, but I think it was in the New York Times or something. And it was really, really good because that's, that's a feeling that a lot of people with depression have. And it's not like, oh, we're all very suicidal. It's, it's not. Sometimes it's just this ideation of not wanting to exist. And it's really, it's terrifying from time to time too, because you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to know. I don't want to feel like this, but at least I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah. And, and I didn't tweet it because I knew people would suddenly be doing what people do. Right. Yeah. Which is like, you'll be okay. Like, it's fine. It's like, no, no, like depression just means you have to be okay with it not being fine. Like I don't need, I don't, nothing you can say is going to make this better. Only somebody that has depression knows like, I'm just going to come sit down with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. all you can do. And we're going to ride this storm out together and, you know, it'll get and better gonna, at some point. It's going to get, it's, it either will get better. It might not for a little. It just, it keeps moving. Yeah. It's, it's never, I don't, it's never gone. I guess that's the worry is I, for some people that's like a lot to take in that it's never gone. Right. Yeah. But it, it isn't really, it's always kind of there and you yeah. can do your best to kind of push through it, but it doesn't just go away. It's it, there's a real, you know, there's an actual chemical thing happening inside of your brain. So you can do your best and that's yeah. all you can do. And just, you know, <laughs> that's yeah, hard well, following you on Twitter. It's so interesting because um, it was, it's, we, I think we did our pre-interview a while ago. So I followed yeah. you on Twitter and I see stuff and like you tweet things and I feel such a kinship to it where I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God, like we don't know each other other than that 30 minute phone call. But I'm like, <laughs> Oh yes, girl. Yes. Like, <laughs> like I just want to pick up the phone and be like, I know we haven't had the interview yet, but like, let's have a call. Cause I am feeling you today. <laughs> yeah. I try. I was like, it's hard to be honest on Twitter, but I, I try to just leave it all out where it can be because I don't think it helps to just not talk about things especially when you're in the middle of nowhere Germany yeah. and you have no friends and you're like okay well this is how I'm feeling today and yeah. this is the thought that's on my mind but it's you know I don't need anybody to tell me oh I'm so sorry and you that's fine it's it's kind and everything but it's like you don't have to say that you can right. just be with me at the moment and you know, I moved, it's not exactly the same, but I moved to Pittsburgh three years ago and I left my, you know, my friend group and I haven't really had a chance to develop that here. So when you're tweeting about 
not having friends and being, and I'm like, oh no, I feel that, right? Like it, I, I understand what that is like. And I understand the tweets and things that go out, not as a cry for help, but just as yeah. a, I don't have this group. So I'm going to just put this here. Yeah. Because it's got to not be in me. And ha you have to let it out a little bit because otherwise it just kind of, it tears at you. Yeah. 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 And so I, I have, I, you, you don't know this, but I have been here for the last two months. Like, Oh, we're friends. Like, you, you're, like you're my girl. We're friends. Like we're going to, like when this stuff hits, we'll just have a conversation and be like, yep. Nope. Get it. <laughs> Turn on. It's, it's funny, right? It's very, it's all like very cyclical. Sometimes you're like, I don't need friends. I'm great. But then like, Two hours later, it can be like, oh, no, I have no friends. Right. <laughs> and right. it's like, I don't know how that happens, but it happens and it's always happening, you know, and I, I'm, I'm handling it. But there are times when I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's, I always tell my friend, you know, whenever you offer friends help, the response is always the same, which is, no, 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 I don't want to put you out, blah, blah, blah. And my response is always the same. Then why do you have friends? You don't have friends <laughs> yeah. for the good times. You have friends for the bad times. That's right. Yeah. You know, you share goodness, but you help badness. Like that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. So, and it's nice to have that. Yeah. And that's yeah. why when I've seen this stuff, like, just so you know, like, uh, this is the longest, uh, uh, sort of banter that I've ever done on the show, but I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I'm like, well, we'll get to her life story in a minute, but there's some shit I want to talk about with her first. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just so you know, we're friends now. And after we're this friends, is over, yeah. like, we'll just, we'll just crank up zoom if we're having a bad day and just leave it on and watch TV <laughs> <Yeah>. together. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. So you're in Germany. Where are you originally from? I'm from Boston. Oh God. What part of Boston? Yeah. I'm from like this little town called Milford. It's like oh, yeah. 40, 40 minutes away, maybe 30 minutes um, from Boston. And yeah, it's like, it's a, it's kind of a city now, I guess. I don't know. It's somewhere between the two. It's a town or a city. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, were you an only child? No, I have an older sister. Oh, how much older? Four years. You guys close? No, <laughs> we're okay. She's like the exact opposite of me in every possible way. So I feel like it's, that happens. Yeah, that does happen. She's like, it's night and day different. So yeah. we're we're getting better about it now as we're older. But when we were younger, it was like, oh man, she is rough. <laughs> it's so hard with her. Uh, what were you like? Um, very similar to now. Quiet, <laughs> quiet. Read a lot. Interested in art. Um, yeah, kept myself. I listened to music a lot all the time. I had friends. I was in uh, choir and music stuff, and I did all of that. But I was—I like to keep to myself, and I worked after school at, at a library, so I was just really kind of go with the flow type. Yeah. My sister is like, I will make the flow. <laughs> type. So it's like, whoa, that's a lot. My sister is older. She's five years older. She was like you. Like she's a concert pianist, worked in a library, very quiet, like followed the rules. And we, we were not close growing up either because of that, because we were different. Um, I think I'm older than you. Uh, and we have gotten closer as we've gotten older because now we bond over what happened as kids. Like yeah. she was there and I was there. We were the only two people that were there. So we're like, oh, this relationship is actually really important to understand why we are the way we are. Yes. That's the same with my sister and I. I mean, I'm I'm also like the um, the fixer in the family. So whenever whenever there's something that's wrong, yeah, I'm the one who gets on the phone and fixes it. Even in Germany, <laughs> so like, what happened? Tell me the problem, and I will fix it. I am the person like everybody's like, oh, Alicia, she's so quiet, and she's always you know very respectful and all these things, until. I say something that needs to be said. And then it's like, oh, Alicia's the rude one. That's, that's right. Alicia's the one that makes you cry. That's me. Unfortunately, I fix the problems. I'm the, the person who, who handles bullies in the family. And that's so interesting as the young person. Like, I am the jokester. Like, my sister is the fixer. But I was really the one that, like, when, when things would go wrong, I would just make jokes and, you know, be entertaining. So we'd forget <laughs> it. So you are sort of a quiet kid, like, uh, reading and things like that. What were your parents like? What did they do? Um, my mom was a hairdresser, but she was disabled. Um, after like, I can't remember, I think I was maybe eight. 
seven, something around there when she was disabled um, and had a stroke. My dad is a musician. Oh. And I take a lot after him. Like he's very goofy, very off, like always kind of laughing at his own jokes, but never on the same topic. (laughs) So you have to really understand him as a person to understand where he's going with his mental process, you know? Yeah. And that's fine for me. That's why he and I get along. Okay. But my mom was like my sister and also very like in your face, a lot of, lot of confrontation, a lot of like, neither one of them were liked school. For instance, they were like, oh, do whatever you want at school. Just go, I guess, if you have to. And uh, <laughs> grades aren't that important. Whereas I was like, it is very important. This is my future. And here's why. Like, and I would give kind of presentations to my family about why things are important. Um, yeah, so you can imagine it's very, we're very different. Yeah. I was like the black sheep of the family who was like, this is very important guys. And here's why, I mean, I even gave like, I would, I, we lived in Boston, you know, outside of Boston and it was always snowing and I would build um, podiums out of snow no. and then I would stay out at night and no. I would be giving inaugural speeches no. <laughs> like all of these things and I'm like I shall be president and here's why and my mom will be like it's eight o'clock it's freezing cold please come in please oh my god <laughs> you were a super nerd yeah I was I really <laughs> was it's it was bad at some points you know <laughs> like that's my sister was like oh no yeah yeah I, yeah, I can imagine that would be bad on multiple reasons <laughs> I was the kid who was like please be mindful of your voice it's very loud you can't be that loud in here yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) it's so interesting that you as the young person was like that but do you think that was a response to the environment you were in right like you sort of have an artist dad and you have these sort of very you know outgoing outspoken older sister and mom that you were like hey everybody we need to take this stuff seriously yeah and also let's let's calm it down a little bit yeah (laughs) that was that was I think so I think I was just kind of born into this family and then I adjusted somehow to just being the person who had to be responsible and on top of stuff and you know because my mom was disabled early in life when I was a kid and my dad went off touring and they split up it was like I became the de facto mom in the house as well so like I was on top of everything at all times and now it's 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 weird because I'm I get to relax a little bit and as an adult as a mom you get to relax yeah, a little bit yeah it's a little bit more relaxing yeah because you know I don't have to take care of my sister and my sister who is older yeah was whoo she was trouble sometimes so <laughs> it's it's really one of the premises of the show is that I think people become writers because we don't feel like we fit into the world. Like we are sort of external third person observers to what's going on around us. Even when we're in the middle of something, there's always something that sort of keeps us on the outside, which is exactly to me what you just described, right? Like there was a family and I was in it, but I had this other thing that I had to do to sort of keep it all together. Yeah. I used to tell people that I'm like, I was, when I was growing up, I was two different people, one who was outside the house and one who was in the house. Yeah. And outside the house, I could be mostly my age and I could do the things that interested me. But inside the house, I had to be on top of everything and really like did not anger anybody because I all because I lived with all these different people with different personalities. Right. They could get like angry really fast, whereas I'm not that fast at anger. So it was like I had to kind of learn how to tiptoe around that. Well, and by definition, you are an observer because of that. You are watching what is happening with everybody and going, how do I morph around this and trying to make sense of it in your head, right? And that, I mean, it has helped me in my writing, I guess. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. That's probably what shaped me. I I never thought about it that way. This is how come I do these interviews uh, (laughs) this way, because I'm like, oh my God, writers don't even understand how they became writers. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. No, no, not at all. I just, I knew I liked imagining really great stories. And Um, why do you think that started? I think it was, for me, it was because I like to escape and, yeah. you know, and I say that every, every time somebody asks me, why do you like writing science fiction? And I say it's because science fiction is that kind of thing where you can go to the movies and you can forget about your life and you can eat popcorn and, you know, and you just enjoy yourself and nothing else matters at that moment. And sci-fi is one of the best at it because of that. And I think that's why sci-fi is always the thing that people want to see when they go to the movies. And I think that because of that, I loved writing sci-fi. Yeah. You know, looking back on my life and and the sort of things that happened as a kid and just, you know, the trauma uh, and stuff, I was a huge science fiction reader. You know, I Mm -hmm. read Asimov and Bradbury and like, and I just devoured that stuff because it was escapism. It was, even when it was, you know, dire science fiction you know like where the robots end up killing everybody it was like yeah i'm I'm okay with that right like it was it was a way to not be where i was it's really great it was great for me and i mean i i tell everybody that x-men was my favorite it was like my my thing that i just kind of i found it and i was like this is it for me x-men is where it's at but i also read philip k dick and i read everything else i could find but x-men was that the comics and you know being able to read that really changed a lot for me because I got to see Magneto who is the bad guy but at times I was like but is he and I was always very interested in morality and how people what they experience and how that can make them bad or good depending and what really is bad or good so yeah that was very fascinating to me because it also got me thinking outside of my house and that was good and science fiction, you know, this is, we're not breaking news here. Like it is about, um, at least the way I experience, it's about the American experiment, right? So you can write about race without writing about race. It was a way for white people to experience, like, instead of black and white discussion that white people generally tend to just run away from and act like it's not a thing, you could put that morality into this sort of space opera and yep. go, oh, shit. Like, oh, and it, then it's not that big of a leap to go, oh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, no, I've experienced this emotion before in this other story. And I don't think we talk enough about no how that science fiction stuff really should be shaping kids. You know, like as we read it, we should be able to have a conversation. That, well, they wrote this as a representation of this. See, but that that would be like, um, what was this? Um, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm blanking right now. But... <laughs> There was this, a really great author, um, Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds was talking on Trevor Noah about how we should shape or shift the classics of what kids are expected to read and how we should change that into how we can like approach them and they can understand the world they're in. And when you, when you say that about science fiction, it's the same thing. Imagine if kids were able to read science fiction and then have an actual conversation about the parallels between our world and this other world and what we can do differently. And that would be really great for kids, but it's just not something that happens. And it's not because I, I have screamed this from the mountaintops forever. White people don't have a language for that. They don't, we've never been forced to actually talk about these things. And I think most white people are really afraid to, to delve into those issues because they don't know what the hell they're talking about because they've not been confronted with that the way black and brown people have. And, and so I think that it, I think that's why that doesn't happen because white it would people be great though. It really, I, you know, yeah. can you imagine you yes. try as a librarian, <laughs> I used to try to have those kind of conversations in the library after school and it would go well between a certain age group. Um, but then other times it's like, 
you can't ask them to read stuff when their teachers are telling them they have to read these classic books, right. which mean nothing to them at the end of the day. And they're like, they're not interested. And then it also affects literacy. And it's just a yes. whole mess of issues. And you're, you just want them to be able to read for fun. And then if they're reading for fun and they also get to think at the same time, it's like, whoa, it's the best yeah. of both worlds. But something's got to change there. And I've told people, this is if you don't teach these boys how to read, and if it's not people that look and sound like me going into those places and going, reading's cool, guys. And anybody that tells you different, I'll fight them in the parking lot. You know, like, <laughs> like this is, this, it, is, it, is, it is manly to read because it develops an empathy. And masculinity should be built around empathy and caring. And, and that's what reading does. I think one of the ways that we taught, we, were, we, we learned at um, library school was that boys like to read nonfiction, right? That, if, if a boy is a reluctant reader, he might be interested in nonfiction. So that could be anything on war or whatever. And then if you get them interested in the nonfiction that way, then you can start to slip in fiction stories about those nonfiction projects, right? right. Or those kind of historical things. And then that's how you start the process of getting them into fiction. But that is a lengthy process. And it's also a process that I don't think teachers have enough time to do. Right. And if boys aren't interested in school, they're not going to be coming to the library to be like, hey, it's the library. It's so much fun. Right. Um, unless we, you're in a, in a low-income area, in which case it might be that way. And, and, the, and the building reading around testing is the worst thing in the world. Um, yeah. I, I was lucky in that I taught 90-minute classes. So I had, two, you know, they put two periods together. And I would say, you know, for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I think a third of the class, I'm like, bring in whatever you want, read it. There's not a test. You don't have to talk about it. Like, I don't care how far you get into it. And they'd bring in graphic. I mean, they brought stuff in. Yeah. They, the kids would read. And I'm like, yeah, if you want to tell us what you're reading, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. There's not a test about it. Like, reading shouldn't be a thing you do to go to bed. And it shouldn't be a thing you do to take a test. That's yeah. not what reading is about. And graphic novels are amazing. Amazing. It's, yeah, I'm just, I'm so surprised that there isn't more talk about how we can get graphic novels into school. Yeah, because I mean. It's like that, that's the thing. I mean, whenever I had kids come into the library, it was, they went right to the graphic novels and they, they'd be like, yeah, it's because it's not really reading, but it is reading. It that's is reading. Right. <laughs> it's actually really complex reading because it's yeah. both understanding what's being said, but also they will devour every panel. Oh, shit. Like when I read a graphic novel, I always have to go back because I just read the words and I'm like, okay, that's I've missed something. Same. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like I finished it. I would finish the Watchmen in a half hour. I'm like, I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. But if a graphic novel to me is as important as Dickens. I don't care. It is, yeah, it is, and it and it also is really great for literacy, but it's also great for to understand how to visualize and how to do these. It's like multitasking for your brain. Yeah. And fantastic. And I think that's more important at this, at this stage in life. <laughs> I think it's more important to focus on things that are interesting than the things that somebody else told you is interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, look, we, this is the, the oddest interview I've ever done. Cause normally <laughs> we're walking through your, your life, but I'm assuming part of the reason that you've written the the book that you wrote is is in some part representation, right? Like I would like to have yeah. black characters at the center of this science fiction story. Yep, it is, and, and because it's not, it doesn't happen a lot in science fiction. And I mean, for a lot of reasons, you don't see a lot of big black girls at the center of a story in science fiction. Yeah, and I really wanted that because I think there's a huge audience there. And also, I think there are a lot of teens who would love that, and it resonates with them. But at the same time, I wrote about a teen who could possibly save the world and doesn't really want to for most of the book. <laughs> and I think that's always interesting because, I mean, if you grow up Black in America and you're looking at the society you're growing up in and you're thinking, okay, now this is terrible, and now aliens have invaded and life sucks even more, I guess, Um then you're like, oh, you get you get the opportunity to to change that. You're like, well, what's the point? So for me, why would I want to do that? Now, I can't remember who said it, but I, it was it was recently. Uh, it was a I think it was a black man. It was like, how long are we going to keep loving a country that very clearly doesn't love yeah. us? Yeah, yeah, 
you know, and it's like the and to sort of bring it back to that graphic novel and or to let kids read what they want, like kid, like if we allow that to happen, I I actually truly think if you allow kids to read what they like, and if you it, that one they grow into adult readers, but two they will naturally gravitate away from things that look like them because we read to escape. We're not reading to read about us. I don't think that's why people read, and so it creates this empathy because you can experience all these different people and all these different places and all of these different things and your life gets bigger when you do that. Yeah. I agree. I just, I, I, you watch, I, I look at how teachers are fighting just to include new books in their curriculum. Right. Can you imagine if they didn't have to do that, if they didn't have to fight to put new books in their curriculum and how much this would change education in the U S like you know instead of like you know to kill a mockingbird we could be talking about the hate you give it's so well done yeah because it's so easy to read and to listen to yeah it it doesn't ever lose you where there's like oh there's this extremely long word that you know yeah i don't know and it now turns me off or something it doesn't happen it's written in a way that makes it easy for you to understand and for you to follow along so it, yeah. it can it can meet everybody at a level and yeah. because of that you know that so much craft went into into oh. making that book yeah you know yeah, oh my god yeah it had to and like centering it on a teen like having a teen narrator i think was just a, a stroke of genius in the way that that story got told me and it gives people i think that may not have wanted to read that a way to get past some of the blocks that would keep them from reading it if say it was a 28 year old black male narrator mm. i don't know I mean, if that's true but <laughs> it's a nice it's sometimes it's a nice thought sometimes you know like i wrote a book about uh, uh alien invasion and the main character is black and the, the other one is an alien and that's cool but do you know how many um angry reviews i got and people who take their reviews from goodreads and then put it into my my um my contact on on my website so that i can make sure i can read their their terrible review of my book and say that one i'm either it's either too heavy it's woke it's too woke um it's preachy (laughs) and it's all of these different things and you're you're looking at it and it's like why are why is it any of those things why does it you know there doesn't have to be a, a a a shooting a friend shooting by a police officer for it to be for it to, um, you know, look at different issues that teens are actually having and experiencing. It doesn't have to be preachy or any of these things. Right. But the main character thinks the way they think because of how they are. And if you can't really understand that, that's not on me necessarily. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and it, it's very fascinating to have to kind of read these reviews. And one of them, one, one lady wrote to me that um, she said, it seems like I didn't understand that I needed to um, broaden my audience for this book and that <laughs> that an older white conservative woman should be able to read this book and not feel upset about it. And she wrote that to me and she, does she, do, do you know that you could have fans in this, in this area who are white conservative women if you didn't write like this? And I thought to myself, I mean, that's not really my, my goal at, <laughs> at all. It's not at all. So right. I don't, it's like, there's so many things wrong with that. But one of them is just like, you are not my target audience. I don't need to broaden my, my audience to include you because you are included in most books already. Right. Well, I can step back and I can, I can write a book for teens and black teens. I can do that. It's very, it's very unusual. <laughs> so I can imagine, I know that Angie Thomas has gotten a lot of, you know, um, hate as well, but she wrote an incredible book. Yeah. And I included her book in my book because it was so important. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, and then I wrote her and I was like, um, no big deal, but your book is in my book. <laughs> and like, I probably like should tell you about that. And then she wrote back like, oh my God, really? I can't wait to read it. And it was like a big moment I had. And I was like, ah. Um, That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, but I included a lot of books in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you didn't tell her that. (laughs) No, 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 but hers was the most central to the story. So it was like, I used that book within this book, but but I don't need to like go into, you know, race relations in the U.S. so much in depth because it doesn't really focus on it. It's about aliens. But there are parallels because that's science fiction. <laughs> right. That's sort yeah. of the brilliance of science fiction. So when when we totally got off track, which is the best. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's the that's the these interviews go best when things get off track. <laughs> so as you like when you're finishing up high school and are thinking about college, are you like thinking, well, I'm gonna be a writer, like I wanna go study that? Like what's happening then? I knew when I was about twelve that I wanted to become in in order um a chef in order i love in order i did (laughs) i did in order i had it written down in my binder and i said i'm going to go into food science or something like this because i really like food and then i'd also really like to become a librarian because i really like um being in the library and i'm gonna work there one day so i know that and then maybe if i have time i'd like to learn how to write books because (laughs) i really like reading books and i wrote this all out in a binder Oh my and God. Did you really? I was about 12 <laughs> and I'm on the end part of that now. So I'm writing books. I became a pastry chef. I became a librarian and uh, now I write books. <laughs> That's the Alicia way. That's amazing that you did it as 12 and then carried through on that. Yeah. I made, made myself that kind of promise. Like this is what you're going to do and you're going to have great time. So that just, and you know, you, that makes you happy. So do it. So, I, I know, like, I came across you because of the pastry stuff. That was, like, that was the thing that caught me online. I was like, oh, shit, you're, this is interesting. So how does one become a pastry chef? Like, how does that happen? I went to Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island, for four years in baking and pastry arts. Really? Um, so yeah. that was what you went to college for? Yep. I went and got my bachelor's in baking and pastry arts. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> is and the funny thing is I'd always I, I loved baking very early on because we couldn't afford to do a lot of stuff growing up because we were super poor and um I would like I always wanted to have cookies or I wanted to have something you know and we couldn't afford it to like go out and buy this stuff so I was like if I just get the ingredients I can learn to make that together and so I learned and taught myself how to make certain things by the time I was um my last year of high school, I had already gotten through all of my math and English requirements by my last year. So I just did whatever I wanted for that last year. And I got to take a cooking class. And I was like, this is great. I think this is really what I needed to do. And I'm having fun with it. And now I know that that's certainly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it. So um, then I just applied to Johnson & Wales. And I got in. And I didn't have any kind of professional, like, learning or anything about that most people who went to Johnson Wales at the beginning were like oh I worked at my town bakery you know after school and I had none of that experience because I worked at the library um and I just kind of went in there and I was like okay well I have to be better because otherwise I won't be able to do this and I went to school and I took extra classes for the first two years where I would take like so I could just get to the same level with some people uh-huh. and by the end of the second year, year you get your um you get your associate's degree and then you interview to get into the p4 program which is like the elite <laughs> the elite of the and that was where you were aiming you're like i'm getting into that i'm getting in there yeah. i'm gonna do it that's why i'm taking all these extra classes i'm <laughs> going to get in there and like if there's like hundreds hundreds of people apply for it like maybe 60 get in or something like this it's like pretty it's it's not there're not a lot of people who get in and i went in there and i was like doing my interview and she goes i see a lot of red flags you don't have any experience you don't have any of this and i was like but i've got passion and here's why <laughs> and so you gave I a got, presentation very much like you used to do in your yeah, house that's what i did i got yeah. in and i did it and i i did not fail and i just kept going and i found my way through it and it turns out i'm very good with chocolate which i didn't know before <laughs> Um, because how would you, I mean, you don't know, you don't yeah. know you're good at chocolate until you're doing chocolate. And it's like, I can make show pieces out of chocolate and I was great at it. And I had no idea. I feel like that is life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know I was good at X until I did it. Yeah. It, but I told myself I was going to do it and I did it. And I was so proud of myself. And then at the end of that, I was like, and now I'm going to go into school to become a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And you can imagine how that went because like, 
you can't go into an, an academic field with like an art major. You, you can't do that normally. But then I went to the, <laughs> I went to Simmons College in Boston and it's a fairly good school, of course. And I went in there and I was like, I really want to go in. I really want to go to school here. I want to be a librarian in public and I want to work with teens and children. And here's why you should take me. Even though I have a pastry background, I appreciate books. And I gave such like a, a nice little presentation again on why. And they we're learning some in. things about you today. <laughs> they let me in. And I was like, oh, I was so surprised. And my, my dad, who was like, my grandmother went to Harvard. She was the, one of the first black people to go to Harvard. Really? Ago. Yeah. And she was incredible, like super determined lady. And um, everybody says I got it from her. I, I mean, maybe she was really cool, but like she was not happy that I went to pastry school because she didn't think that was a good use of my time. Sure. But when everybody found out I was going into Simmons College in Boston for librarianship, it was like, finally, <laughs> I've done something right. All was forgiven. Yeah, it was like, we don't understand Alicia's path in life, but she has decided this is what she's going to do, and she did it. So so was that a master's? Yeah, that was my master's in library science. That's, I did. Yeah, what was that? Uh, no, it's just, it's just such an interesting left turn, but also not. Like, if you made that decision at 12, and you're like, look, people, just don't. This I'm is what get, I said I was going to do, and I did it. I'm doing it, and yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you think about that. So when you finish library, when you finish that master's, what comes next? Well, after that, I went into, um, I was deciding if I wanted to do my PhD in library science as well. But the things that I wanted to do in library science were things that nobody wanted to let me do. <laughs> Again, so, we're learning things about you. <laughs> I was like, what I'd like to focus on is how um, invisibility <laughs> in um, libraries and, and how uh, certain patrons use the library without you knowing who they are. So I call it the invisible patrons because they're people who are maybe LGBTQ, uh, maybe they're, they have some kind of marginalization you can't see, and we have to be able to provide um, services to them without knowing if they need it or not because you shouldn't have to disclose these kind of things, right? Right. So this was where I was coming from on it. And everybody I talked to, I went to UCLA, I went to um, North Carolina, um, UNC Chapel Hill there. And I can't remember, I think the last, I can't remember the last one. I went to all of them, they were like, it's very interesting, but we cannot, <laughs> we, can't, we can't do this. First, the UNC was like, no one's gonna let you do that. If you pick <laughs> any other topic, Maybe, but not that. And I was like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to like give in to that. I don't want to just do right. whatever. This is really matters to me. So <laughs> in the end, it was like no. And I also applied for the PhD program at um, um, uh, New York, uh, NYU, but for food studies. Of course. Because I was, also, I was also really interested in how people who are poor inner city. Mm -hmm. don't have um, access to good food yeah, and the food deserts that that creates and how it affects, um, you know, obesity and poor health and malnourishment and all of these things in a developed country. Yeah. And I was very interested in that as well. And the woman said, if I, if I only have one spot open, I would pick you in a heartbeat, but you are like 23 and, you know, we, we just can't like, we have to pick somebody who is older and more experienced for the PhD program. Apply in a few more years. And I was like, really? <laughs> so like, because I had gone on this, this path of like, I have to have instant success or else I'm going to fail. I had been doing that for so long that I didn't know how to stop myself and be like, oh, so in five years, I'll apply for that again. Right. I couldn't do that. And I was like, well, I could just be a librarian. I do love being a librarian. I did go to school for that, so I could do that. But then I couldn't find a job in that when I got out of school and I moved to New York City. So I went in, into being a pastry chef again. And I did that for a year. And then I eventually found myself working in the school as um, a school librarian and a food teacher. So I was teaching culinary to kids. Oh, cool. And I had fun with that as well. 
and yeah that's basically where I'm at where I just kind of like I'll do whatever so that I can succeed I mean I worked at 7-Eleven at one point I worked I've worked everywhere just so that I could get all of these things in in line for me yeah I, you know, I worked third shift at a gas station one year. <laughs> like I'm familiar with the, like, whatever it takes to make this happen. Yeah. The three jobs is where you get really tired, but it's eventually it pays off. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, anytime I talk to poor kids, like when I went to graduate school, I had two jobs, you know, I basically did school at night. Um, I worked full-time during the day and then I worked on the facilities department to make more, you know, extra money or well, not extra, just to make enough to keep living. And I tell kids, like, look, if you do this when you're poor, it's going to be really hard. But at some point, you're going to have the most interesting stories at the cocktail party. Right. <laughs> I have a lot of great stories. But, yeah. it's like, but so much time. Yeah, people that don't go through it, like, they're like, oh, my God, how did you do it? And you're like, well. You stopped sleeping. Yeah, like, you didn't have a choice. What was my choice? Yeah. yeah. You just, you find a way through it. I mean, I, I did the three job thing, and it's it's tough. But there were so many great jobs that I've had. Like I worked at Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island for a year. And I got to see all these plays for free while working. Yeah. Like it's the best life ever for me. I was like, that was my third job. And I worked at Borders Books at one point. Yeah. It was like, I had the best. I had such a great time, you know. The best job I ever had was bartending at a blues bar called Antones down in Austin. Wow. Uh, and, and then I cleaned um bars after that so i would go and like literally like clean the toilets and stuff like that to make extra money but i saw you know coco taylor i saw the last you know members of money waters uh willie oh. nelson dr john like i like everybody came through there uh maceo parker and i just thought i can't believe i'm making money <laughs> seeing like the greatest blues people alive today you right. know even if i have to clean the toilets at 3 30 in the morning to, <laughs> to make enough money to pay rent like great fine super i'm in it's it's that kind of like the choice you make but you understand what you're doing yeah 100 percent. yeah it works out so at what point do you say okay i've been doing this library thing like i got one more thing on my list so i had been writing books um since i was a kid and all of them were kind of trashy (laughs) (laughs) none of them were really good and i thought Oh no, Alicia, you made a promise to yourself you can't keep because you're not good enough. And I kept trying. I would read as much as I could. I did everything I possibly could. And um, when I got my pastry degree, I also had a, um, a, ba- a concentration in food writing. And I became a food critic on the side <laughs> during that time too, <laughs> as one does. Yeah, um, of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I, I always found my way to, to food writing and I loved food writing so much because I love food so much. And then having that, I was like, okay, but can I ever transition into fiction and do it well? And I really didn't think I could until about, I want to say 2016 when I was working at, um, in Brooklyn Public Library and I was a children's librarian there and I decided to take an online class about superheroes because of course, I would take a book, a class about superheroes. Was that like Gotham or something? Uh, it was something like that. Um, I can't remember. It was like edX or something like this. Got, oh, and, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and Stan Lee was doing the class. Holy shit. So I was like, I'm going to do this. And I did it. <laughs> and I got to create my own superhero character and all this stuff. And I thought, okay, this is really, really fun. And I did it. And then I thought, oh, I could, I could like change that superhero into a story. And so then I wrote a 96,000 word story Jesus, in like a few months. (laughs) Maybe we'll see if like, that's good enough. And I started querying it. It was not good enough. Um, And then I, (laughs) uh, you know, and then I sent it in, I decided to apply for a writing in the mentor, writing in the margins mentorship. And um, Tam Matea, chose me justina ireland is the one who was offering it and tamateo chose me and then i just kind of um we i learned how to write fiction from her and we revised the entire book really hard for four months yeah and then what i ended up doing was setting it aside and i had written the sequel to it as well and i set that aside as well did you write that after the editing yeah i was writing it during the editing because i thought i had time so i could do it um, and that was also like another hundred thousand word book. And then like a few months after this, like I finished in April, I want to say April. 
And then in June, I decided to write The Sound of Stars. I wrote that in the month of June. I revised it by August. I applied for pitch wars, didn't get in. And then I pitched it <laughs> at, at PitMed that like September the 7th, 2017. And I got my first offer for an agent. And really? That went, yeah. That, so, you, so you did it through Twitter? I did it through Twitter, yeah. That's amazing. You're the first person I've had on the show that like has gone through pit mad and pitch wars and stuff like that, who like that paid off. Yeah. It, That's amazing. It, it was a very strange time for me because I wasn't expecting that. Sure. But that's, you know, that's when love happens, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, you don't know what you're really doing until it's, it's, it's happening. And then yeah. you're like, do I have, I, maybe I have what it takes after all. Yeah. You're not good I mean, with chocolate until you find out you are. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> it's basically been my life, you know. It's really been like, I pr- I try so hard and I push so hard and I'm so focused on this one thing happening, and then when it happens, I'm like, wow, I didn't think that was gonna happen. <laughs> like, yeah. Meanwhile, you set it out when you were 12, so of course it happened. And, and of course, you know. But it's it's been a very weird time, and it's that's been what what the process has been for me, where it's kind of like. I didn't stumble into it, but sometimes it feels like I stumbled into it. Yeah, this of all the stories I've heard on the show, this is one of the least stumbled into. The fact that you are surprised every time you have succeeded is interesting, but you <laughs> set yourself out on this path in the beginning and we're like, well, this is the path that's going to happen. Yeah, I've been, I'm, it's, it's uncompromising in times where it's like, where if you fail just a little, it feels like the end of the world. Right. It really feels like the end of the world. But like I knew that I went, I, I told you I applied for all these uh, PhD programs. I traveled around the country to see if I could get into one of these programs and all of them fell through. And then I was like, oh, it doesn't actually hurt too much because it really, I don't think it was a dream. I think I was just scared that if I didn't get this one more thing, I, would, I wouldn't have that stability. And I think I was just really scared of not having stability. Um, and then when it fell through, I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to go on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it. it's the poor kid lament. Yeah. I've talked about it on the show so many times. Like when you don't have a back, when there's not a safety net. Yeah. All you can do is move forward and moving back or stopping isn't an issue. Even when you get to a point where you're stable and okay, that thing exists within you always. And there is always a fight to just stop for a minute and be like, actually, I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. It was a real moment for me. I didn't know that about myself until it happened. Yeah. And I'm like, I think if I, if I hadn't, if it, if I, I wouldn't have known that I didn't need that until I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. And I didn't lose sleep over it. I didn't cry about it. And if I, if I hadn't gone into to library school, I think that really would have crushed my entire life plan and dreams, but I did. And I was just kind of grateful at this point to just be able to do all the things I have done considering that I had no money and I had like a really messed up family. And it was just like nothing in me, nothing about me on the surface would have been somebody that you'd expect to have succeeded. Um, But I did. And it's kind of like, sometimes I'm really grateful. And then sometimes I'm like, okay, how do I keep this up while I can because I'm terrified that it's like the, the, the shoe's going to drop, you know? I think it's like, oh, no. What if they realize I'm actually not good at anything? That's you know? poor, This is the poor kid's lament. <laughs> yes, no, I understand 100%. Like, yeah. I always tell folks, like, I don't feel like I have any skill. I'm 48. I've had jobs my whole life. I've written for, you know, publications that had millions of readers. And I'm like, I don't, I feel like they messed up when they hired me. Like, my yeah. esteem of me didn't go up. My esteem of the places that hired me has gone down. i don't know how we get past that i mean like i remember graduating from um my pastry degree and my mom came and she was crying in the audience she was just like so proud and then i walked out of there and i was like all right let's go have dinner you know and she goes well aren't you excited aren't you so happy aren't you proud of yourself and i was like no because i have to go on to the next thing i don't ever stop Right. I don't stop to appreciate the the tiny successes I have, yeah, or even the big ones because it's always what happens next. Yeah, how do I keep moving forward? I I'm, I mad maddeningly maddeningly um, 
don't keep any awards or anything I've ever received. I put in a box. I like, I, I don't showcase any success that I've had for exactly that reason. I tell folks like, well, that's in the past. You're giving me this for something that doesn't exist for me right now. Like I have to worry about the next thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It's really bad though. <laughs> I, like, I think it really bothers everybody else around you. Yeah. A lot. Oh. 100% because when other people win stuff, I make a huge fucking deal out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people that I've just interviewed on the show who don't even know me, like people will cross like 400 reviews on Amazon and I will send them a postcard like, that's amazing. Like you don't understand how big that is. And I'm sure they're like, I talked to this guy once. Like what's <laughs> happening? And I'm like, no, celebrate success because I do not know how to. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, right? I, yeah. I don't know where that comes from and how to get past that. And I, it's like, I guess because I've always been pushing myself so hard from the very beginning that at no point did anybody ever like go, oh, good job. <laughs> at no point did anybody ever go, yeah, you're good now. You can relax. Right. It never happened. Well, I don't think anybody can. T I mean, I think that's the, that's what I call the poor kid lament. Like if you grew, if that's part of your DNA and that was sort of, you know, hearkening back to the, earlier when I was like, well, it's like blackness or poorness, like those things, yeah. when they become part of your DNA, there's, I don't think there's a way to extract it. Like you're never going to, you're never going to experience a time where you don't both feel black and remember being poor. That it just, there's nothing you can do. That's just who you are. And I, I, whenever I see people that don't have that, again, this is one of those like empathy things where I'm like, well, it's a very short jump from being a poor kid to understanding black lives matter, right? Because I can understand the sort of internal fear that I had. And this country was set up for people that look and sound like me. So imagine if you don't, like that fear has to be off the charts. Like there's yeah. that, it, like that doesn't feel like a big leap to me, but I don't feel like there's going to be a point where either one of us are like, we've made it. I don't think so, no. Right. Like no. I'm going to celebrate me. Like that's just not, the, the world, or at least the country, I don't know about the world, but the country is not set up to ever make you feel like you're okay. Yeah. Which it's is a very... horrible way to end this interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the country's not, not set up to make sure you feel okay. Yeah, like everything yeah. was good, like you had just succeeded in everything, and then I just dive-bombed in here with like... <laughs> But it sucks. Everything's awful. I don't know why you don't feel good. Everything's awful in the country set up to fucking destroy us. That is true, though. It is true. It is. Well, it has been so lovely to actually do this interview finally and not just interact on Twitter. Like, I am so thankful that you spent an hour with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I know uh, we didn't get to, I'm sure if you had questions, we didn't get to any. <laughs> I don't, I don't really do questions. This is what the show is, right? Like I just like getting to know people. Um, and now I don't read books until after I do the interview. So I have put the order in right before this started and I'm looking forward to getting your book and reading your book. Thank you. I hope you like it. I really do. I'm sure I have no doubt that I will. I you have a good day. A Wait, <laughs> say it again. Say it again. I think you'll understand when you read the book now because you know me at this point. So you're going to be like, oh, I totally get what was happening in her brain. It's why I don't like to read books until I've talked to people because I, writers are writing things for a reason. And once I understand who they are, the book makes more sense to me. <laughs> that That's was what, really smart. That's a really smart idea. I mean, I've been doing this for a while. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> great. Will you take care of yourself? And uh, this was so lovely, and I hope we can do it again soon without the microphone. I hope so, too. You have a great day. Well, there you have it. That was Alicia Dow, whose book, The Sound of Stars, is out right now. Utterly charming. Such a good way to end election season, because I am sure, like me, all of you are stressed out right now. Hope that gave you a little bit of joy. Hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I love putting that together for you. Before we get out of here, just a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that I ask at the top of the show. Leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McAleer. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they are out every Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.